Let's go inside under my skin. You come around the other way. A dream I had of spinning 30 years in one day. It's not too late. Hello and welcome to another edition of Act in Context podcast. I am your co-host, John DeLynn, and I'm here again with the ever-wonderful co-host, Jennifer Plum. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, John. How's it going? Good. It's great to be here. Summer is upon us. Well, I wish. It's not quite hit Reno yet. Is it cold in Reno? Yeah. Oh, my apologies. It's finally hit Utah. Yeah. Well, um... This is an exciting day, not only because we have a very special guest, but also because it's the first time we've kind of branched out beyond the core processes and the introduction, and we're going to be tackling sort of act for a specific condition, in this case, post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's kind of a new a new phase of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exciting. Yeah. So with that, <clears throat> I would like to introduce our very special guest. Her name is Robin Walzer. Um, just a, hello, Robin. Thanks for joining us. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> and you're you're um, you're joining us from the Bay Area, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let me. I'll read your bio, and then we'll talk a bit about that. Um, sure, sure. Uh, Robin is the director of TL Consultation Services, and works at the National Center for PTSD, which is really cool. I can't wait to learn about that. Um, It says, as a licensed psychologist, she maintains an international training, consulting, and therapy practice. Dr. Walzer is an expert in acceptance and commitment therapy and has co-authored three books on ACT, including a book on Learning ACT. Which book was that, Robin? Learning ACT. Okay, that's that's with Jason Maloma. Is that Jason Maloma's? That's the title. Yeah, Jay Jay and Steve. I love that book. I want you to know I love that book. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. I had some great co-authors. Yeah. I'm in my I'm in my second year of training, and we use that for our ACT class. And I, oh, I think it's one of the best books out there for sure. So sorry about that little tangent. Um, Robin has an expertise in traumatic stress and substance abuse and has authored a number of articles, chapters, and books on these topics. She's been doing ACT workshops since 1998. That predates the ACT book. Um, training in multiple formats and for multiple client problems. Her workshops feature a combination of lecture and experiential exercises designed to prove to provide a unique learning opportunity in this state-of-the-art intervention, and she is often referred to as a clinician's clinician, which we love on this podcast, I will have to say. Uh, so, Robin, you, you go around the, the world training, huh? Uh, correct, <clears throat> yes. Been to a number of very exciting and fun places and uh, – I've had some fantastic experiences. Oh, well, I can't wait to learn more. It says that you hold the clinical science model and has presented her research findings and papers at lots of conferences, hospitals, universities, etc. Robin has invested in developing innovative ways to translate science into practice, which we desperately need, and continues to do research and education on dissemination of ACT and other therapies, which we also desperately need. Robin has a number of leadership roles in international and national organizations and served as a member at large um, and currently president for the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences. You're the president of ACBS. That's correct. I should know that. 
Yes, you should. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, that's a, you know, I would say that's a long bio, but really it's all very substantive. So again, uh, Robin Walzer, welcome to Acting Context Podcast. We're delighted to have you. Thank you. So, um, man, there's a million questions I want to ask you, but um, tell us just really quickly about the uh, um, National Center for PTSD. Sure. Uh, the National Center for PTSD is part of the Veterans Administration. Uh, we are uh, We have seven locations, and we're a consortium. And the location that I work at is in Menlo Park, California. We're part of the Palo Alto Healthcare Division of the VA. And our job is to disseminate and train individuals in treatment of PTSD. So we do a lot of, we spend a lot of time uh, educating folks and giving them different kinds of trainings and how to best treat folks who are struggling uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder. That's just our division. The other divisions have a number of different things that they do, ranging from researching everything from the biology of PTSD to... Uh, how it impacts families. So um, we're we're pretty comprehensive center, and uh, it's a pleasure to work there. So are you in Palo Alto? Uh, no, I am in Menlo Park, which is a okay. just a satellite off of Palo Alto. Gotcha. Yeah, you're also in high tech country. Hi, that's correct. We have yeah. a lot of um, uh, high tech business happening. We're right in the center of it. Now, just to jump in. I just saw something about a um, an app for veterans um, about PTSD. Is that something that you guys were involved in? Yeah, we're there's a team of folks here I've been consulting with who are developing a phone application that uh, is to be used with someone who's doing acceptance and commitment therapy. And so you can download this app onto your phone and it'll guide you through different exercises, including mindfulness and keeping track of how much you're living your values and other kinds of um, act consistent um, interactions. And it's really exciting. I'm looking forward to it coming out. And I believe it's going to be available to anybody, uh, not, so not, cool. just veter- not just veterans, but available to anybody who's interested. I was just thinking, wouldn't it be great to have an app to keep track of my values every day? Wow, I'd use that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Very we, cool. We, yeah, yeah we're, I, it's exciting, and I'm looking forward to it being released. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow, me too. That sounds cool. Um, well, we want to jump into the substance, Robin, but the way we've been starting these podcasts is by just, uh, you know, just giving a brief introduction kind of of what brought you into the field of psychology, a little bit about your background that kind of made you interested in, in being uh, a psychologist, and then make that bridge to what, what brought you into the world of ACT. And then we'll, and then if you can just take us up to that point with some some of that biographical information, just so we can get to know you a bit, we'll dive right in to PTSD because there's a lot to cover today. Sure. So, uh, probably I first got interested in psychology as an undergraduate. It wasn't what I was originally thinking of doing. I was quite interested in things like biology and physiology and those kinds of things. I was taking a lot of courses um, in that area as an undergraduate, hoping to get a bachelor's in science, which I did end up getting. But 
uh, partway through my undergraduate career, I started taking some psychology courses and got interested in abnormal psychology. And I started working in, believe it or not, a rat lab. And so for five years, I was running rats on mazes and um, doing that straightforward behavioral principles application, you know, t uh, training rats to do particular things. And uh started my interest there and I had always kind of had an interest in looking at trauma and so when I applied to graduate school had the idea of um, studying trauma and went to University of Nevada Las Vegas uh, for my master's degree and was there in the glory days of Tark the Shark for the basketball Jerry team. Tarkanian <laughs> that's right running <laughs> rebels that's right. 1984. Never missed, <laughs> never missed a game. Uh, it was a it was a lot of fun, and uh, so uh, that speaks a little bit to how I spent my first graduate years and my <laughs> school years, and um, still remained interested in trauma and uh, applied to the University of Nevada Reno, hoping to work with Victoria Follett, which I did, and then I sat in on a Steve Hayes lab and really got excited and interested and continued to work both in uh, Vic's lab and Steve's lab for a good part of my career, but in the end ended up doing my dissertation with Steve. And just when I started doing the work there, it's almost as if pennies were dropping and into everything kind of fell into place and just made a lot of sense to me. And I've been, been working in it ever since. Mm-hmm. And I can personally attest that uh, being trained in Steve Hayes' lab and t learning acts through through him, uh, Robin, we still have some old tapes of you doing doing act, and and actually they're part of our we're part of our core competencies uh, meetings for quite a while. We we would see you doing creative hopelessness in particular. Um, so you you have been you've had a hand in shaping pretty much every other student who's come through. <laughs> doing act at the Steve's lab. So wow, yeah, wow. <laughs> it's very hard to watch yourself on video. <laughs> well, I I can attest that those videos are inspiring still to this day. So <laughs> good, good. good. I thought I'd embarrass you a little bit out there. <laughs> if you could, if you could see me, you'd see a slight flush to my. Mm -hmm. to my <laughs> wow. So we have a. So Robin, you're kind of a a real act veteran. You're one of the one of the pioneers, I'd say. Yes, I, I feel like I've been around forever doing this kind of stuff. But, the, you know, the exciting part is is that it doesn't ever seem to grow old. I mean, it's so creative that it really lends itself to innovation and invention, and that that's what keeps it exciting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll just start. I, you know, I had a lunch with a couple here in Logan, Utah the other day. He is a eye doctor. He's a, what is it, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist? Which one is an MD? He's... He's the MD type. And um, yeah. he he did his training in the military uh, in Maryland and in Germany right during the Iraq War. And his job was to see veterans um, uh, and to treat them in some very severe and traumatic uh, situations where limbs had been lost, where eyes had been lost where in some cases these patients that he treated um, were uh, were kind of unrecognizable when he when he was presented uh, to treat them and you know he was talking about the 
post-traumatic stress disorder that he experienced just treating these people, not to mention what 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 type of stress and trauma the people, you know, the soldiers themselves have experienced. And so this is kind of a somber way to start. But I guess my first question is, you know, when, when a lot of people think of post-traumatic stress disorder, that's what they think of. They think of soldiers who have been in combat. Let's start, if you're okay, by maybe giving us a fuller picture of the different types of post-traumatic stress disorder so that we can understand the varieties of what we're going to be talking about today. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, combat is one way in which people can um, get PTSD, but it can come from any kind of trauma, uh, ranging from uh, sexual trauma, such as a rape or a childhood sexual abuse, uh, all the way out to being robbed in a parking lot. And so uh, the different kinds might be natural disaster, uh, combat or war-related trauma, uh, sexual trauma, uh, other kinds of acts of war, like being imprisoned and attacked or assaulted. Um, so there's a number of ways, and the way to best think of it is if you uh, experience or witness uh, your life or someone else's life being in a severe danger and you are horrified or paralyzed by the experience, and you feel a sense of helplessness around it. And th- those are the ways in which you can think about PTSD developing. Okay. And and just for, for those who aren't familiar with the DSM, what are sort of the main criteria uh, where, where someone would know if they, if they had PTSD? What are some of the telltale signs or symptoms? So one of the interesting things about the diagnosis of PTSD is that there's a known etiology. And with a lot of other diagnoses, that may not be the case. And so that... Tell us real quick what that word means for those who don't know. Uh, where, uh, how it developed, where it started. So gotcha. there's a identifiable uh, description of what actually happened that started the process. So and that would be the... Something, sorry. <laughs> so as opposed to something like depression where maybe there isn't a, an event that someone had happen in their lives where they became depressed afterwards. That may be the case, but it could vary a lot. So in other words, like PTSD is one where there's actually a, an identifiable event that was the precursor to having this difficulty. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. Right. And that um, there are three sets of symptoms that people experience following the event. You cannot be diagnosed with PTSD unless you've had these symptoms for more than a month. And uh, they include re-experiencing. And for, this is like you have uh, the memories of the trauma come back. You maybe have intrusive thoughts about it. Recurrent or distressing dreams might be part of it. So you're actually having nightmares about what happened or nightmares related to the event. Some folks even have a sense that the trauma is happening again. And we call this a flashback. So something triggers uh, this response. And it's as if they are back in the experience and they will act and do things that correspond with being in the experience. And then just other kinds of discomfort um, when they are reminded of the event in some way. So that'd be a, a sense of the trauma keeps happening even though it's no longer physically happening. On the inside, it seems to be happening again. We call that re-experiencing. 
And then another set of symptoms is avoidant symptoms. And this is a part of why um, ACT addresses this so well, but I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk about that more later. But typically what happens is the re-experiencing shows up and people really don't want to experience those things. So they're actively engaging in avoidant type behaviors to escape the thoughts and feelings that might be associated with a traumatic event. Uh, they might also experience reduced interest in participating in activities that used to be that perhaps they once uh, were quite engaged in. They might uh, begin to feel disconnected from others, so they begin to avoid other people. Part of this is related to the sense that something's wrong with me and I don't want people to see this and they kind of get caught up in not wanting to trigger themselves or be reminded of triggers and so they'll withdraw and isolate. They can numb out, uh, like disconnect from their emotions, uh, backing away from what they're experiencing because there tends to be a lot of anxiety that comes along with the re-experiencing. Uh, or depression, they might feel quite depressed, and so they'll kind of numb out from their emotions. And that's sort of a category of avoidance, and you can think of it as avoiding thoughts, feelings, sensations, or memories related to the event. And then the final set of symptoms is increased arousal, and this is typically characterized by things like being particularly alert or hypervigilant is what we call it. So you're searching and scanning your environment for uh, danger when there is none. Uh, you might have an exaggerated startle response. So whereas most of us would might have a little bit of a jump when a loud door closes behind us, uh, folks who have PTSD sometimes are very startled. They'll jump up out of their chair and turn around quickly and even do things like take defensive stances and that kind of thing. Uh, feeling irritable, feeling angry, uh, having difficulty falling or mm -hmm. staying asleep. Uh, all of these are kind of the sense of increased arousal. So the three main areas are re-experiencing, avoidance, and increased arousal. Mm -hmm. And you have to have a number of, you have to meet a couple of those criteria within each of those three categories in order to be diagnosed with PTSD. Okay. So Robin, um, so with that definition, one, one question comes to mind. You mentioned natural disasters, uh, some type of sexual abuse or trauma, rape, and then and then also you mentioned kind of being in a in a war zone or some type of traumatic war experience, violent experience. And I'm just curious, one question that immediately jumps out to me is, are those three experiences, do they share enough in common? And if so, what do they share such that they can all be kind of classified as the same, same thing? Well, I think the key thing to keep in mind is that PTSD develops in response to an event that causes fear, helplessness, or horror. Uh, maybe a sense that your life is going to be taken or somebody else's life is going to be taken, for example. And so that can happen in any of those conditions and other conditions of trauma. And so when you're doing treatment, uh, you're tackling the symptoms that are common to things that happen when you're afraid of your life, afraid for your life or um, feel helpless 
effects and uh, very dramatic situations. And so you're working to treat the symptoms specifically, not necessarily the type of trauma that happened. So remind us again, what the, which, what are the symptoms that those three types of experiences share? Uh, intrusive, uh, well, there's three categories of symptoms uh, that I mentioned, and that's uh, re-experiencing, avoidance, and hyperarousal. So those are the three main symptoms that people have as they, when they develop PTSD. Re-experiencing, avoidance, and arousal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. where do intrusive thoughts come into play with those three? In the re-experiencing. Oh, that, so they okay. continue you to experience thoughts about the trauma or related to the trauma mm-hmm. okay gotcha. it might be re-experiencing would include things like memories dreams feeling like it's happening again flashbacks those kinds of things so how how correct or incorrect is this stereotype of the let's just say the, the one that i probably grew up with kind of like the the vietnam veteran that wakes up at 2 a.m in a sweat and you know, is in the posture of retaliating to some type of violent act that he's imagining. How how, how realistic or, or characteristic is that sort of stereotype, um, both within within the the war zone scenario, but also with the other scenarios? Or is it a much more rich and diverse, textured types of um, experiences or sensations or symptoms? the people with PTSD have. Does that make sense, the question? Yeah, and I think it would be fair to say that there's a lot of texture. Uh, People have different responses, and some might experience more anxiety. Uh, Others might experience uh, sleeplessness. So there's a a number of ways in which folks will have uh, lesser or more symptoms just depending on their individual makeup and perhaps the character of the trauma, but um, nightmares and uh, responses where you feel as if something has happened again or you're uh, kind of hyper-aroused and reactive to something that has happened uh, does happen. And so folks can wake up from a dream and be in a defensive posture. Uh, They um, can have flashbacks, which are much more rare, and sometimes people confuse flashbacks with an intense memory so with an intense memory it's as if the memory is quite vivid and uh, you can see the details and maybe hear the sounds and those kinds of uh, experiences but in a flashback it's as if it's happening again like it's like the reality of your current context is lost and it's as if you're back in the experience and you will see people do things like dive under tables because they think a bomb is going off or something like that. And so mm. uh, those are seem to be very real experiences, although much less frequent. And sometimes by lay people or people who don't know as much about PTSD confused with intense memories of it. And mm. nightmares themselves are a, are a fairly defining feature of PTSD. Um, uh, people who you know are in their sleep or recounting the trauma or some parts of the trauma uh, can be can be fairly disruptive uh, to individuals who have PTSD. Mm-hmm. And is there some bleed over between PTSD and um, and schizophrenia for, uh, from the sense that 
seeing things that may not be there or hearing things that may not be there? Is there ever any bleeding over in between the two? Well, um, I would say none, none particular of note. Now, one thing that can happen when you have PTSD is that you might see things and misinterpret them. So perhaps you see a shadow and misinterpret it as someone moving um, to get you or, uh, you know, there, so there can be flare, uh, flavors of paranoia in PTSD that have to do with hypervigilance and, and um, re-experiencing uh, kind of overlearned responses in some places where if there's a loud noise, it means means in a trauma situation get out of the way whereas you know if you're walking down the street and hear the backfire of a vehicle there's no need to get out of the way but they'll still respond as if they're in the trauma situation so you can say you could say something like the sensory experiences of people who have PTSD may be heightened or uh, super alert and there are folks who have PTSD who do have auditory experiences and some visual experiences that either are things that they've seen that they're misinterpreting or sometimes even things that may not be there but it's not a a crossover with schizophrenia and it's not um it's it's not super common Mm -hmm. but it's common enough but not super common okay sure my question would be um you know these sound like difficult experiences to cope with. So what, what do you see as uh, ways people cope? Um, you know, are there other kinds of problems that people tend to have with PTSD that are sort of highly common uh, that you might see when someone comes in with PTSD, maybe other um, psychological difficulties or that are maybe ways to help them cope or, um, or just other, other issues that tend to happen alongside PTSD? Sure. Uh, PTSD is highly comorbid with other uh, disorders, uh, other Axis 1 and um, other medical disorders that we find too. And so uh, depression is uh, fairly common among individuals who have PTSD. Uh, they experience intense um, sadness and lack of interest in things they used to be interested in and uh, will will struggle a bit with uh, maybe other anxieties like social anxiety or something like that. Uh, substance abuse is another common co-occurring disorder. It's just often used as a way to manage symptoms of hyperarousal or intrusive memories that people will abuse substances or as a way to kind of help medicate themselves. And so mm-hmm. it's not uh, it's not unusual for people to have multiple diagnoses on board when they're experiencing PTSD. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some of our folks who've had PTSD for a long time, you can imagine that the stress of that would start to take its toll on the body. And so uh, you might get things like high blood pressure, um, ulcers you know those kinds of things can begin mm. to happen when you from like prolonged stress yeah uh-huh. yeah from prolonged or not or having ptsd that goes untreated let's say where you're you know having conditions of intense anxiety and not you know lack of sleep and stuff like that for long periods of time yeah yeah gotcha 
So, so Josh, sorry, sorry, John. Um, I was just going to ask about treatments. Were there something else you wanted to ask before we moved into that? No, that's exactly where I was going to go. Is just how, how, what are the most common treatments for PTSD prior to ACT? I'd say, and what are the what are the good things and maybe the the things that that leave room for a treatment like ACT? Well, so the two most common treatments and uh, treatments that have been shown to be effective for um, tackling PTSD are prolonged exposure. Uh, developed by Edna Foa, and cognitive processing therapy developed by Patty Riesick. And I can describe each of those just a little bit if that if that makes sense to do Please. here yeah. now. They both uh, have exposure in them. A prolonged exposure in particular uh, involves exposing the client to the trauma memories that are most impactful and that they're having the most difficulty with again again until they habituate essentially to the memory and then also doing in vivo exposure so uh, individuals who have PTSD often drop out of their lives in ways where it impacts them and they'll stop going to places that remind them of the trauma so they're avoiding important places and or maybe avoiding talking about things or everything from you know watching television because something reminds them to uh, just completely dropping out of society so the in vivo exposure exercises are about getting back into those situations and again habituating so that you're able to go into those situations again without difficulty Cool. And so, just to, just to it, jump in for the for the please. folks who are not familiar with some of the terms you just used there, um, so the in vivo exposure is doing exposure like in the moment to the real life situations the person's avoiding. Is that correct? correct. That's correct. And then habituation um, is what precisely? It's a process of a way to say it is that it becomes a habit, right? There's a process Mm. of experiencing emotions in such a way that they're no longer affecting you. And what you'll see over time is if someone is highly anxious in a situation and if they stay there and uh, let the anxiety just come rise and then fall as it will, that they'll begin to habituate to the situation. The, The situation becomes like a habit and it, no longer evokes the same level of intensity of anxiety that you might find in another place and so they can walk okay. into the situations without the same kind of difficulty if I could so they is that a good way to describe it to lay people yeah yeah I think it because so it sounds like the same situation can become more comfortable over time or less less intensely anxiety provoking correct cool correct okay makes sense so what about the what about the other treatment So cognitive processing therapy also has an exposure component, Uh, but rather than what I should say about prolonged exposure or PE as it's um, the shorthand, is that you do repeated exposure when you're doing the imaginal exposure, which is repeating in um, out loud the memory by witnessing the memory in your imagination uh, again and again in a single session. And um, you're actually taking... Uh, uh, SUDS ratings during that time and those are uh, subjective units of distress ratings and what you're seeing as they habituate to the memory they get used to the memory is that their SUDS ratings go down and uh, um, 
with um, cognitive processing therapy, you're doing a repetition also, but it's of a different nature. You're, you're writing the trauma and then reading the trauma of, of again and again in between sessions as a way to habituate to the trauma, so to speak. So they're both exposure-based in terms of you're re-presenting the memory again and again to the individual until it no longer impacts them the way that it used to impact them. And then with um, cognitive processing therapy, uh, you it's much more, it's a cognitively oriented intervention, uh, theoretically cognitive. And um, what you do is go in and do a straightforward cognitive therapy uh, around issues such as guilt, shame, powerlessness, you know, things that you might experience and reinterpret inaccurately after a trauma so essentially you're going after the thoughts that are problematic um, following a trauma and uh, changing those that so that they're less impactful in the individual's life. So Robin some of the the thoughts that people have in in CPT that the therapist might try to work with or change might it be something like um the person's thinking, oh, I should have done something different to prevent this trauma from happening. Like somehow it might have been my fault or, or that kind of thing. Is, is yeah. that the kind of thoughts that people sort of have or discuss in therapy? Precisely, precisely. So things like it was my fault or it was uh, I'm permanently damaged as a result of the trauma or I'm to blame and uh, uh, I should be held responsible. Uh, I shouldn't have been in that bar at that time, for instance, and Mm -hmm. that if I hadn't done this, this wouldn't have happened to me. That might be an example of a thought that you would see as irrational from that perspective. And then you would do a cognitive intervention of having them, you know, assess the, the activating events, the beliefs and, and then debate those kinds of thoughts so that they are more um, realistic and rational in nature. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it, it, they cover a fair number of talk, topics, everything from um, uh, guilt and shame to, um, you know, other kinds of uh, problematic thoughts that folks have following a trauma. Sure. The one that the one that sticks in my mind that I just remember from some of my older my my introductory classes was twenty twenty hindsight <laughs> or hindsight bias. Yeah, you know, yeah. Thinking that oh, right, you know, from this right. moment in time I could have done X Y Z, but in that moment, you know, what how possible really was that? Things like that. That's I always remembered that one. Yeah, and it, you do see of uh, uh, folks actually having those kinds of thoughts, like what what could I have done differently that would have prevented what happened and mm-hmm. uh you can you can understand that people who've gone through these experiences and and maybe have been significantly hurt themselves like lost a limb or have seen somebody else significantly hurt mm-hmm. um that they would want to figure out a way to to not have that happen sure it must be really hard to feel like the world is uncontrollable afterwards you know that when something really traumatic happens, is there a sense of loss of, you know, feeling like the world is uncontrollable, unpredictable, there's not much we can do to control it or, or prevent harm for, to ourselves? Sure. And, uh, you know, um, from a cognitive processing 
therapy perspective, that's a large part of what the problem is, is that your view of the world changes and you may go from kind of the sense of safety and stability to um, no safety and instability. And that's part of what's sustaining the problem following a trauma. Mm-hmm. So with these two treatments, I guess, uh, let's talk briefly just about how, you know, if there are success rates or effectiveness rates, what are they, where these treatments seem to really serve uh, well, maybe where they don't serve so well, and how that creates um, a space for ACT to also play a part. Is that something maybe you can speak to a bit? Sure, sure. Um, both treatments have been um, empirically established as effective. Uh, some of the trouble that clients run into, and I'll speak a little bit to the to what therapists run into with each of these interventions, is fear of exposure. Uh, they they don't want to recount the memories, and uh, they struggle with the notion of retelling the memory again and again, and really um, would rather not, understandably so. And so there's been some studies that have shown that the rates of, you know, refusing exposure-based interventions can range from 30, 40, sometimes even 50%, and uh, that dropout rates are quite high too, and typically within the first few sessions. And I, part of it seems to be the struggle with doing these heavily exposure-based kinds of interventions, but they're they're quite effective, and I I, I want to emphasize that if folks can get in and stay in, that they're um, uh, usually quite helpful to individuals. It's getting uh, over that hump of staying in, right? You know, it's like getting over making the, that commitment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, making the commitment and then sticking through the commitment. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, there's also another piece about this that I think. ACT works well on, and that maybe PE and CPT address more indirectly, although PE more directly, is number one, all the comorbidities that are going on with folks who have PTSD, that ACT is more comprehensive in that way, Mm. and that um, a lot of the things that folks are struggling with when they have PTSD are uh, relational and interpersonal in nature, they're, um, you know, beyond just the simple kind of experience of um, an intrusive thought or which exposure works very nice for or um, of a memory that's problematic that, again, which exposure works very nice for is that there are individuals who need to get back into their lives in uh, ways that are much larger than simply dealing with the symptoms. So both of those interventions are uh, focused on reducing symptoms, where as I think ACT is focused on, you know, what kind of life will you lead now and where will you head based on your values? And so those targets can, can be different. And uh, treatment failures are also another place where ACT can come in and um, perhaps uh, be effective for individuals who got through PE and, or CPT and maybe had decreases in um, their experience of symptoms, but they, they still need other work. 
we'll maybe work on depression or maybe work on getting back into interpersonal relationships and being effective. There's So there's a number of ways in which um, ACT can be a very helpful and useful alternative. Hmm. Okay, cool. so that, that reminds me a little bit of, of um, exposure as it, and ritual prevention as it relates to OCD. Um, the, the, when it works, it works well. The problem is that uh, sometimes up to 50 or 60% of the time you have either dropout or uh, uh, refusal or non-response. And so that's that's when ACT can, can oftentimes uh, really be helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, and we need, to, we need to research this a little bit more, but I think also ACT can be a nice prep for exposure. In, I only have anecdotal information here, but I don't really have... Um, uh, data to support this and this is one of the places where we really need to do a fair amount of work uh, is you know how well does ACT do with the treatment of PTSD but anecdotally in uh, some of the settings that I've been in folks who with the reports that I hear from uh, staff who are doing treatment of PTSD is that if they do acceptance and commitment therapy first if they do a round of acceptance and commitment therapy that they're much more open to prolonged exposure and they're more likely to stay. So in some ways it can, it can be a nice pre-treatment um, to get that kind of exposure piece um, more available to the individual. I, I guess if I could say it that way, and then mm-hmm. it might be a nice post intervention too. So uh, where you're, again, like I mentioned, you're looking at other areas of the individual's life where this might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So I just want to interject something in a moment that I, I'm looking at uh, what we talked about so far. I don't think we mentioned that, Robin, you, in addition to Learning Act, you also authored uh, a therapist book for how to use ACT with with PTSD and trauma, correct? Yeah. yeah so, it's, so- uh, it's called Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for the Treatment of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder and Trauma-Related Problems. Uh, Dara Westrup is my co-author, and she and I had a had a fair amount of fun, uh, as much as you can have writing a book, and uh, <laughs> we had a fair amount of fun writing the writing the manual, and really did focus on writing it for the clinician. So um, tried to uh, make it very clinician friendly in terms of how we presented the information when work, when working with ACT. Mm-hmm. I, I was just thinking of that when you were mentioning how ACT could be used in conjunction with some other treatments. Um, if folks were thinking of picking it up, that might be a good place to start um, is your book. I've, I've read a lot of your exercises in there and found them really useful. So, Well, thank you. I'm glad that's the case. Yeah. Tell us the name of the book one more time. It is Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for the Treatment of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder and Trauma-Related Problems. Okay. We uh, we need to make sure to mention that at the end as well. So yeah, so we will. Well, let's jump into it then, uh, Robin. This has been a, a really good introduction. So, what is ACT sort of take on treating PTSD? What's the ACT approach? Well, um, I say one of the probably the first things that I think about when I'm looking at a trauma, which is based on something that has happened to an individual is that our histories are unchangeable. And when you think about how we organize things in our minds and 
we kind of problem solve in ways that are not very effective for us. Some, some of the places that trauma survivors will go is trying to figure out how not to remember their trauma anymore. Uh, you know, almost as if they could undo their history in some way. And well, clients will come in and say things like, I don't ever want to think about this again. Um, it, the memory is destroying me or something like that. And I think of Acts' take on acceptance of historical events uh, can, and not and having those events be experiences that you've had and not experiences that define you like pieces on the chessboard can be very helpful to clients. They're, they're not as threatening under those circumstances and history doesn't have to be the thing that lives the patient's life for them any longer. And so that's one of the, the first places that I start with when I think, when I think specifically about the trauma and so there's a big piece of acceptance work there in that you don't, the memory can come and go and you, that when you battle with the memory and that you, it must be gone is when people uh, really start to struggle. And so if they let it come and go as it comes and goes, they, they, their suffering, I think decreases. And so that's kind of one piece about the acceptance. There's certainly more to say there and in, but then the other part of commitment, um, lots of folks kind of get into this place where what I need to do is not feel what I feel when I'm having the memories about the trauma, or I need to fix my insides in some ways before I can live my life. So it has this quality. Um, once my PTSD goes away, then I'll start to live and re-engage my life. Mm-hmm. And where we start with uh, re-engagement now, that there doesn't need to be a time when you feel better before you can start doing those things that really matter to you. And we see people who get stuck in waiting for their PTSD to go away for 20, 30 40 years before they feel like they can start living. And of course, that's, that's very costly when you're waiting for that period of time uh, to not have negative memories or what you evaluate as negative memories. And certainly they are. Certainly those memories are, are powerful. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what I'd say in terms of a start. Um, Guide me a little bit, uh, Jen and John. Tell me where else you'd like me to go in terms of thinking about how ACT applies here. One question I would have is, um, and this comes up a lot, I think, in, in working with anxiety disorders from an ACT perspective, is um, does ACT have a different take on exposure than some of those traditional exposure treatments like PE or CPT? Well, I think that the distinction that I would make is that the goal of exposure uh, in the treatments that are used for PTSD is to decrease and eliminate symptoms. And of in ACT, that might be a nice byproduct of uh, exposing yourself, but it's not a goal. It's not a target of intervention. We're, we're not going in with, we're going to eliminate this anxiety or we're going to eliminate uh, bodily sensations that you don't like. Um, 
in fact, we're going to be working on showing up to them, being being present to them, uh, fully, wholly, non-defensively, uh, while also making, um, you know, choices that are about vital lives rather than choices that are about feeling better. So would it be safe to say that um, I've heard some folks say things like, you know, uh, act is exposure in the sense that it's exposing you to the discomforting, uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, uh, experiences, memories you might have, but not in the service of habituating to them or making them go away, but rather to just learning how to notice them, to be with them or, or not react to them in the way that causes problems for life for living sure sure i could i could agree with that that um i do think that exposure is happening and you know interoceptive exposure exposure to your bodily sensations being present to them uh without struggle uh inviting people to make commitments and we we call them bold moves in some of the therapy that we do but commitments that are about valued living kind of has that quality of getting out there and getting into your life where anxiety may be quite high and quite, um, uh, you know, weighing on your mind as you're doing these things, but you're, you're staying with it. And certainly um, they might experience a decrease in the, in the symptoms, but, you know, should something happen where symptoms are re-triggered or, uh, some life circumstances create anxiety and maybe take you back to some of the experiences that you have that that you don't have to then re-engage more exposure. You show up to them and be present to them like you you have the foundation for experiencing what's there to be experienced and maybe they'll maybe it'll come and maybe it won't. If I could share a personal example, it's not specifically trauma related, but uh, is in the category of anxiety where uh, I don't know if the two of you know this about me, but I have um, public speaking anxiety that uh, can be can go off the wall. I mean, and I'll turn red and I'll sweat and I'll do, you know, I'll, I'll feel like my mind is racing around. I'll have all of those kind of typical symptoms that you might experience in public speaking. And um Given that I do it a fair amount, you would say that I'm exposing myself and I notice that a lot of the time I don't feel as anxious as I used to when I first started doing uh, public speaking. But every now and then, um, my anxiety will just go through the roof. Hmm. Uh, like it returns in a way that was unexpected or that, uh, you know, if I had solved the problem of my anxiety through exposure, you wouldn't think that that would happen. And, uh, you know, something might happen while I'm, while I'm doing that where I'm suddenly back in that place. And this is where ACT works really well for me is that I stay present to what I'm experiencing. Uh, whereas before I might have done something like run out of the room or... Um, fumble around and try to, you know, get off the stage as quickly as possible or something. And um, now I just let it be there. I show up, I notice it, I'm present to it, and I proceed uh, with what I'm saying. 
And even if I stumble a little bit, I proceed. And so I think this is an, an advantage to act with the anxiety disorders is that if, if it, if it comes back, it's not like you need to go back into treatment. You, you're there and you know what, what needs to happen in those spaces. So it sounds, if I can just kind of summarize uh, more from, from kind of a, a newbie perspective, it sounds like what I hear you guys saying is that you don't, you don't want, and tell me if I'm wrong, you don't want to set the client up with the expectation that the thoughts or the feelings or the memories are going to go away or decrease for two reasons. One is that, um, one is that by attending to wanting them to go to go away, by, by making the effort to make them go away, you may even, you know, make them worse or may, make them more severe. Um, is that is that first half part right? Correct. And, In order to know that you want a memory to go away, you have to know the memory. That's right. a good way mm-hmm. to say it. Right. And so it's counterproductive to set that expectation because the mere attempting to get rid of or not have the memories or dreams or thoughts or feelings, you're you're likely to invoke them and to keep them around at, at a comparable intensity and frequency or maybe even an increased of frequency or intensity is that so, so? That's what you're saying. The first part, correct. And, and then, and, this, and then, oh, go ahead, Jen. Were you gonna I was just going to jump in and say there's one act phrase that has stuck out for me. One of the first things I learned was, if you don't want it, you've got it. Right. Okay. I mean, that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then the second half is, is that if in the unfortunate and and probably very likely event that even they somewhat get better through treatment but then have some type of uh, resurgence in thoughts, memories, feelings, uh, nightmares, etc., then there's this level of disappointment because the expectation was that they would go away and all of a sudden they've had, quote, a relapse. And in, in the scenario where you haven't set up that expectation, then they can just sort of say, well, it happens sometimes and it's going to be there and I'll just get back on the horse Versus like, oh my gosh, here it comes again. I thought I was, quote, better, and now I'm not. Is that is that the other half of what you're saying? I, I think I would agree with that, and I would expand on it. Um, we really work with the client to define what is meant by better. And uh, we let them know in the therapy that uh, better doesn't mean that they're going to walk around with good or okay feelings or good or okay thoughts that better is really defined by the valued living that they're engaged in the kind of life that they're having and so there's two things that that I would say about what the that last comment that you're that you're putting in there is that um, yes they may have of uh, less anxiety or less memories, less intrusive thoughts, something like that. And then something could trigger it and it'd come back and they wouldn't have the expectation that that shouldn't have happened from an act perspective. But they would also know that better doesn't mean that they're going to feel good all the time. Better means that they're, that they're living the life that that's, that's um, valued and matter uh, matters to them. Gotcha. Okay. So let's, if it's okay, let's jump back to, to the, the act treatment itself for PTSD. And I kind of have a question. I, I thought it might be valuable to just kind of, you know, our, our listener, listening audience has sort of been through an introduction to act 
and the six major processes, the act processes. And you've touched a little bit on on acceptance. Um, and w- what it might be fun to do is, is to go through each of the six processes just really quickly and maybe talk about, you know, some of the exercises you do or what the, what the course of treatment is with PTSD and how the six processes intersect with, with PTSD specifically. But I want to begin with acceptance. And this is actually something that I think I brought up in a previous podcast with, with PTSD specifically. But because we have you here, I want to kind of ask this question again. Um, so, so as a therapist, let's just say that the average therapist has never and this may be a, a, a leap, but I'm just going to say it. Let's say the average therapist has never been raped, has never been in a war-torn area, seen someone get brutally murdered, or has never been in a major natu- natural disaster where they've seen people drown or die in, in violent or horrific ways. How do, you, um, how do you with confidence say to someone who's experienced th- experiencing things in ways that that you – probably can't even get your mind around as to the severity and the intensity. How do you go in with the confidence to sort of send the message to them of, Hey, you know, no, sorry, I'm not going to, I'm not going to build the expectation in you that these are going to go away. These are things that you need to create a space for. And once you've created a space for them and learn to accept them and have them and to live you know, proceed in a value direction. How do you deliver that message with confidence without trivializing what they've been through and and without seeming insensitive to the severity of what they're experiencing? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I, what I would say is um, I don't know that I deliver that message with confidence, uh, but rather compassion of, and appeal to what they know about themselves in terms of how long they've been struggling with their emotional experience, um, what it is that they're hoping to get that's not happening, and will work from a place of that maybe I couldn't imagine what it would be like to have your life in in danger, and I could admit, but I could understand that you don't want to have a life that's engulfed by that particular uh, memory, just like I wouldn't want to have a life that's engulfed by my anxiety. And so uh, I kind of bring it down to a place of of workability and tell me the kind of life that that you're missing, that you want to live, and how well has it worked to... uh, try to make these very painful things go away. And I think that if you are uh, in this therapy or any therapy for that matter, in terms of working with clients that like compassion has to be right at the forefront of what you're doing. And I think may even in some ways of change a little bit about how you do some of the core processes. And I can talk more about that, but I think the delivery is not in confidence, but in compassion. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say do that, Robin. Why don't you walk through each of the six core act processes, if, if you don't mind, and talk about, um, yeah, well, this is just do your regular act, or or better yet, okay, for this process, here are some metaphors or exercises that work particularly well, or here are some sensitivities 
that you need to be aware of where you really need to treat someone with PTSD maybe a little bit differently than you would somebody with OCD or with generalized anxiety disorder or depression or some other kind of flavor. Um, Sure, sure. Well, so let's start with acceptance then and willingness to experience. And I think uh, this is a process that you would do in a general fashion like you might in any other ACT uh, therapy. Uh, But with the uh, extra caution around willingness does not mean concession, Hmm. Um, that it doesn't mean that what happened to you was okay, particularly if it was a interpersonal trauma where um, maybe you were attacked and physically hurt or you were raped. And sometimes trauma survivors can confuse acceptance with it it was okay what happened to me. Hmm. And you want to be really clear, right, that willingness to experience now does not mean that we're condoning, endorsing, invalidating in any way the pain of what happened to you back then. And so of when I'm working on a, a trauma with an individual, I emphasize that part that we're like, this is about opening up to your emotional experience, validating the pain of what happened to you, noting that it was not okay and um, uh, having a sense of being able to be present to what is there for you to experience. Okay. Mm. So uh, willingness is, I think you really want to, as a trauma of, of therapist, you want to be sure that the client understands that because you could quickly invalidate them if you um, move to technique kind of th- ways of doing the intervention, like just accept or, um, you know, you, do you see what I'm saying? Do you have, a, do you have an example of, of where that's maybe gone awry with a certain type of client just to kind of illustrate? Not, not necessarily a specific client, but just a general, you know, for a certain type of set of symptoms, a certain approach. Well, especially with um, uh, memories of um, in a ray, almost any of the traumas, actually, as, I, as I'm sitting here thinking about it. Uh, for well, let me let me see if I can give you this client example where. A woman came to see me following a bank robbery, and someone had held a a pistol to the back of her neck, mm. and uh, she could feel if I could uh, the pistol at the back of her neck um, as a re-experiencing symptom. Mm. And you know what? A, if you kind of walk around in life, kind of feeling a pistol at the back of your neck, you know, so you have the actual sensation of the gun pressed up against her neck. Um, you really want to be able to connect with the anxiety and pain of something like that, like that constant kind of reminder that someone threatened your life. Mm-hmm. And that you were completely and entirely helpless in that situation. And so when you're working on acceptance of that, like that constant reminder that this bad thing happened to you, you um, really want to come come at it with um, 
for instance, with this client, the thing that we worked on is noticing that sensation, being fully present to it, and really seeing it as a sensation, and that um, that the trauma is in the past, and it was and it was in terribly frightening. And that sensation doesn't have to be in charge of your life. But you really have to do it. It's almost a felt kind of sense, if I could explain it that way, from a very grounded and humble place that you don't know better than the client, that you um, connect to the fear that must have been present under those circumstances and and don't diminish in, in any way what that what that must be like for someone. If I can, does that answer your question, John? Does that? Sure, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a lot of humility, a lot of empathy, a lot of compassion, a lot of client knows best and client sort of referring to the client experience and, and letting their experience be their wisdom. Exactly. And play, where I've seen this go astray is uh, where maybe I'm supervising somebody who's just learning act and they're treating trauma and they'll turn to kind of canned ways of doing the intervention and will say things like just accept that feeling that you have at the back of your neck with you know kind of not being in that space that you just described or not coming from that space that you just described and you can almost feel the client balk at it Mm -hmm. you know as as they're as the client is saying something like that so the interpersonal part of acceptance is really important in this area that there's a willingness to be present to somebody else's pain to sit in a witnessing fashion uh, without diminishing it and asking them to open up to the experience and um, I think you have to be willing to sit there and and be present in a in a way too that just doesn't have this kind of quality of well what you need to do is just accept or what you need to do is you know it like advice giving and um uh, a really directive stuff at this at this point in the therapy would probably not be very helpful Mm. gotcha yeah that makes that makes total sense yeah yeah if I if I then move, do you want me to move forward to diffusion? Then is that yeah yeah, yeah that's perfect. So with diffusion, um, this you know I think of it as a, a very useful way to observe and see that um, thoughts are thoughts, and uh, you know um, we equate diffusion with mindfulness and uh, having clients observe their thoughts as they're passing through their minds, even the really difficult ones um, of, can be challenging for someone who's having a thought about a perpetrator or um, has actually in some way been physically damaged by the trauma and they're having the thought that I'm damaged. Okay. Can you like, there's some mm-hmm. sensitivities in there that you want to be, you want to be aware of in that um, kind of a straightforward uh, diffusion of the thought I'm damaged, I'm damaged, I'm damaged may not be the most sensitive things to to do. And so I tend to, when I'm doing diffusion with trauma survivors, I tend to work more on observing the thought, noticing how that message came after 
uh, the trauma and has been kind of being played again and again. And can you see the message for what it is almost like watching programming, right? And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do less of the more playful things that you can do in diffusion, like repeating the thought um, or singing the thought or something like that. I'll, I'll try to do much more of that kind of being mindfully aware of the things that your mind offers you post-trauma. Not that you couldn't ever be playful with it. Cause I think diffusion also invites playfulness in a lot of ways. And, right, right. Um, uh, if the client seems like they're in the place where they can be playful, then, then wonderful. But if not, then I'm going to, I'm going to be using a diffusion in a very thoughtful and serious way with a, with someone who has an experience of trauma. Mm. Um, so the whole making a funny voice to make fun of the thought probably should be, should be done with caution, right? Should be done with caution. You should really, have a very strong relationship with your client and know that um, they're with you in that and that they get what diffusion is about. Yeah. Uh, uh, doing a funny voice over, <laughs> I was um, horribly uh, raped and now I'm damaged is, loses the, I think kind of moves you away from compassion in those places. And so mm -hmm. I am selective about where I apply diffusion and how I apply it depending on where the client's at and what the thoughts are that folks are diffusing from. Mm -hmm. Now, theoretically, of course, you should be able to diffuse from any thought in that fashion. And uh, so certainly that, that makes a lot of, that makes a lot of sense to me um, theoretically. But when you think about applying it to, certain clients I think there's ways that it would work better and ways that it that it wouldn't work as well mm -hmm. yeah just because it's something that you can do doesn't mean it's appropriate for that moment and in, in time and if someone's someone's been struggling with this stuff for a while or it's just really intense it may not be the appropriate time or place to, to use that strategy yeah precisely yeah, precisely yeah. gotcha great great gotcha. okay um anything else about diffusion I was just uh, sitting here thinking, and I realized that sitting and thinking on a podcast is probably not the best thing to do because we have <laughs> moments of silence. Uh, but maybe with ACT, it is the good thing to do with moments of silence. Um, let's see. Um, I think one of the things that it, the leaves on the stream exercise, it, you know, if you kind of as a diffusion exercise, I've found to be particularly helpful because uh, it I think it creates two things one is kind of this peaceful place and then the other is the thoughts are flowing and and uh, just anecdotally I've found that a useful quite useful intervention that is respectful of the of the trauma survivor and so mm -hmm. and that we have many trauma survivors who um, are quite quite pleased with that exercise as a mindfulness exercise if mm. i could if i could say that nice nice okay so leaves on a stream is 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 one common exercise uh any other metaphors or exercises that work seem to serve particularly well for either acceptance or diffusion anything else come to mind there is the there is one that does come to mind in terms of acceptance and of this is an exercise that I myself found very powerful and 
probably was even a turning point for me in terms of really opening up to your own experience and um, how you relate to yourself. And uh, this is the the exercise where you uh, imagine in your mind yourself as a child and going back to your home and asking your parents for what you need. And then once you come out of the home, you ask yourself for what you need. And in terms of acceptance, I think that kind of showing up to our own vulnerabilities and how we treat ourselves when we feel vulnerable, uh, kind of a recognition of, am I harsh with myself? Am I non-compassionate? with myself when not accepting really when I feel vulnerable do I uh, you know crawl up into my mind and get into places that have to do with I'm weak I'm not okay I'm damaged and I'm kind of criticizing myself in that way versus being able to and I think the child is what represents this in this exercise is to have compassion for your vulnerability and also to recognize the pain of that kind of criticism that might happen or the kind of, you know, um, thoughts that you might hear in those places and really fully and openly um, uh, recognizing how you can relate to yourself differently, that you don't have to treat yourself the way other people have treated you, um, uh, mm-hmm. that you can be present to your vulnerable place in a in a very open way that um, I think can be quite powerful for folks when they're working on acceptance of themselves. Boy, that's such a powerful exercise. When I've seen it done, people have, yeah, it's, it's definitely a moving experience. Um and it's been, I think it's been called like the little kid exercise. Is that just a, a way people used to speak about it? Or is that, I think it's been published as that in maybe a few places. I think that's correct. It's been mm-hmm. called the little kid exercise. And um, I've, call, I've called it the, I think in the Darren and I's book, we call it the child exercise. And we're, um, we've, we have seen some pretty amazing moments with, Women, for instance, who were sexually abused as children or who women who were in domestically violent relationships where they kind of connect to a place where they've rejected their own vulnerability and that they can actually make a 180 degree shift to accepting their vulnerability while still treating themselves in ways that are valued and important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if I and then if I kind of move forward, uh, I can talk about self as context just for a minute. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I would say this is my this is just my personal opinion about it, but I think um, self as context is probably the most important part of um, the processes that we do in ACT as related to trauma. Uh, may, maybe it's the case with with others, but I really see it as. Um, such a valuable tool when you start thinking about trauma. So many uh, uh, PTSD survivors can get into places of um, stuck in places of right and wrong or victimhood, or they lose their role as a, a multiple roles, I guess, as a, as a human being. So for instance, you might find somebody who at post trauma um, 
steps into the victim role and kind of stays there, gets hooked by it. Or uh, or you might, Vietnam-era veteran with PTSD might be a good example that it's as if they are Vietnam, like they get into that role and they've lost the other roles in their life, like dad and brother and community member and spiritual person, like like their ability to be flexible in the and to be more open to all the different places that are available to them can tend to get lost. It's as if the trauma almost collapses flexibility and people get um, kind of narrow in their ways of experiencing the world and viewing themselves. Not everyone, but a fair number of, of folks. And it may, you know, following trauma, um, you do want to kind of pull in and want to be safe and protective and what can happen in those places you can really get glued to how your mind is you know uh, uh, receiving the messages that minds give and self as context I think is a just an incredible way to open back up again and uh, when someone can recognize that their trauma memory is a piece on the board, not the board itself. Uh, you you can see some pretty terrific movement there, and I've seen um, uh, clients say things like, "I have been here all along, uh, and I thought I've I've only been here since my trauma." Hmm. You know, or, or or it's like life stopped then, and I've been stuck in that. You know nine-year-old body or that 19-year-old body or that 20-year-old body and so the really nice part about self as context is you there's the you before the trauma there's the you at the trauma there's the you after the trauma and you stretch across all of those places and there's more you to stretch across it's not like you know you run out of experiencing if you live to be 50 you'll experience and if you live to be 105 you'll be experiencing and so there's kind of that nice quality of stretching out forever you know until you're not here anymore that there's so many different pieces and experiences that you have that like kind of getting caught by that one piece um just so uh, just so narrowly defines who you are as a human being that having recognition of it and being able to let go can be uh, very helpful for individuals who are struggling with trauma and and the exercise are are there particular metaphors or exercises that 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 help with that process other than the one you kind of just referred to which is kind of taking them back into memories and experiences and, and noticing the self um, throughout the history um, in in different experiences and in the present is that is that the main way through that exercise that I've heard Steve do where, where he has you reflect on a memory you know a, a day ago and then a week ago and then a month ago and then a year ago and then ten years ago and yeah. note and notice the self in all those experiences yeah yeah that's the one notice okay. the observer okay and uh, so chessboard and um uh, that particular exercise, I think, are probably two, two of the exercises that I think can be uh, quite valuable uh, when somebody is kind of living as a trauma victim and you want to help them like live beyond that and, and see beyond that. Okay. And, cool. and 
the one thing that that just jumps out at me um, as I'm thinking about doing either self as context, memory types of things, or just mindfulness in general is what if what if during session does this ever happen? What if during session they start having the memory, the traumatic memory, and it's just happening right in front of you. Is that ever happen, or does, does PTSD not work that way? And if it does happen, where they experience the the rape or the the violent act while they're in session, how would you deal with that? Well, it, that's a very good question, and it does happen. And you know, if you think about relational frame theory, if you're in treatment for trauma, and you're asked to close your eyes. What do you think you're going right. to get? Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> you're going to remember all that stuff you don't want to be remembering. You're going to be right there in that yeah. place where yeah. um, the things that you're trying to fix are present. And so uh, I do a number of things to help um, folks with this. If one thing we can do is keep eyes open. And so uh, that's one way to, to help folks work with it. Um is that if they can stay more grounded in the present, if we're doing a mindfulness exercise, they can also close their eyes. Uh, uh, but I might have them notice that if the trauma memory comes along, they can um, open their eyes at first until we get more work on board about noticing uh, these as the pieces that they are, uh, you know, along those lines. And so I'm quite sensitive to it. And I let people know that that's going to be there. It's not, it's not different than what's already there for them uh, in, in many ways because they're, these things are on their minds anyway. That's why they're intrusive and, you know, they're, they're hanging out. And so um, if they can be exposed to these uh, in some way that, that um, they can see that they can have the memory and not be the memory. So there's a fair mm-hmm. amount of work that you can do in those areas because it is the case that, that memories will show up under those circumstances. And so we'll talk about the relationship to the memory. So is there, are there particular techniques used to help ground people? Like do people get sort of caught up in those experiences and sort of take them out of the moment with you? Oh yeah. No, sometimes uh, you'll be in the middle of an exercise and suddenly you'll see eyes pop open and uh, uh, the, the trauma survivor might say something like, I, I'm having those memories right now. And this is where the use of um, flexible use of the hexaflex is really important is that you can go right to the present moment, notice your experience, show up to it, uh, let it be there in a, you know, in a non-defensive and open fashion. And you can get a little interoceptive exposure right there in the room that's present moment oriented and uh, not, necessarily about history or focusing on the memory just be present to what your body's experiencing and so you can you know flexibly move around the hexaflex at that moment Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, have there been people who you know refuse or say no I can't go there I don't want to do this this is too much I can't handle the sensations that are showing up right now what do you do with that meet them where they're at just if they're in a place where um, I just feel like I can't do this, then I just, we go there. What's happening for you in this place? What, um, what is your mind saying about it? Uh, uh, you know, is it, is it, is your mind saying it's too scary? You know, we'll just uh, be meet right there uh, 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 and not forcing the person to go somewhere that they, that they don't want to go. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Using ACT flexibly uh, allows you to meet the client where they're at and uh, be present to their experience as a therapist in your own willingness and um, rather than feel prescripted or you have to go uh, somewhere specifically if they if they say they don't want to do it like you know well we have to do this or something like that you really want to want to shy away from that as much as you can especially given the likely context of what caused their trauma right precisely precisely okay so let's talk about anything anything interesting about mindfulness as it relates to ptsd well i think um learning to be the observer uh, both of your of your thoughts and your experiences uh, showing up to the moment this kind of present moment notion of um, one of the things that I think happens for clients who have PTSD is they're kind of stuck in the past worrying about what happened or they're stuck in the future worrying about is this going to go on forever and one of the kind of brilliant things about present moment is that you you don't keep giving away moments to the past or the future but you're actually present to what's happening uh, right now and most often those moments are quite nice, relatively speaking, especially if they're compared to moments of trauma. And so, you know, there's a lot of freedom in that space. So uh, so I routinely ask clients to practice mindfulness and not just mindfulness of their thoughts and memories, because sometimes that can be a struggling point for them, especially if they're just starting mindfulness, but rather... Uh, Mindful walking, mindful working, mindful any kind of activity that they're engaging in, I think is is helpful. Hmm. I imagine mindfulness would be a tough place for folks to go. I mean, if we talked before about exposure being difficult because people are unwilling to sit with experiences, I mean, isn't that kind of what mindfulness is, like showing up to things that may be uncomfortable? Um, so I guess this is a question that I, I struggle with sometimes is, you know, sometimes clients will say to me, why would you ask me to show up to what I'm feeling when mm. that's the very thing that I came here to, to, to get over or to, it's all I can focus on. It's all I can seem to experience. Mm. Um, why would you ask me to focus on that? Yeah. Uh, I, I would probably again, talk about it in terms of, uh, workability that, uh, you know, if you don't want it, you've got it. And that when we turn in and focus on it, sometimes we're actually sustaining it and we lose the ongoing flow of experience. And so part of what I'm asking you to show up to is not to focus on it and keep it there, but to um, focus and be aware of the changing experience that happens uh, when you're not trying to avoid or get rid of something. And so like part of what these exercises are about is helping the client to contact the ebb and flow of anxiety, the ebb and flow of calm and peace, the ebb and flow of sadness, and that that they can see the dynamic quality of experience rather than the static, I can't feel this place. Mm-hmm. And so why would you even ask me to go there? And uh, so I'll kind of put it out there like, let's see what happens if we actually let it be present. I see. Yeah, that's a very different stance than wallowing in it or something like that. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Gotcha. Great. Thanks. And then I can, if um, I can make a comment about valued living and committed action, um, 
when uh, I'll kind of put these two together because I think they come hand in hand is that uh, when you are uh, traumatized, you can kind of move away from values and efforts to get better in efforts to not feel. So avoidance is such a large part of PTSD that people will start to avoid everywhere and they really do step away from the kinds of things that matter to them and so redefining those clarifying them and uh, getting into uh, uh, what will you make your life about will PTSD uh, live you or will you live your life is kind of a way to think about it and clients can connect to this they really do want to uh, get their values back and and the the range of committed actions that you could do or bold moves as we call them in in relationship to bringing those values to life is is tremendous I mean I almost feel like it's without limit and it can start in very tiny places and move all the way up to uh, great big places like you know, uh, leaving relationships or getting in relationships or, um, uh, you know, I, I've, I've seen clients do things like be in a, uh, a relationship with a partner for the first time in, in years and, act, and be working actively uh, to be intimate with them and to share with them some of their experiences. And so that's that actually has that quality of vitality and I'll I'll talk with clients about you know kind of combining acceptance and value-based living as vitality incorporates the range of experience the pain and joy uh, vitality doesn't necessarily have to be just joy and I think that in our culture, at least, we have it worked out that way, that vitality means joy. Mm -hmm. But if you start looking at the pain that information offers you, the, um, the things that pain tells you are important to you, uh, then you can start to open up to the possibility of the richness and textured quality of being open to that full range of emotional experience rather than closed off to pieces or parts of it. And under those circumstances where um, you're willing to feel it all, then uh, stepping forward, taking risks, showing up to what's important to you can all be uh, very, very helpful for a, a trauma survivor. Awesome. Awesome. Are there challenges to dealing with values for, for trauma survivors? Particular, that might be particular to, the, to, to folks with a trauma history? Or committed action. Uh, let me, th uh, I'm just thinking, um, sometimes committed action might mean getting back involved with family members who you've been um, absent from for a while and may even mean mm. um, connecting with a family members who still are around and support a perpetrator. Mm. Those mm. kinds of things can be very challenging and defining what that looks like how much they'll do it and the giving the the client like complete control over how that will unfold is very important and mm -hmm. that we're not asking them to reestablish uh, you know if they want to let's say reestablish relationship with family because family is a value for them you might define it as you know how will that look where you are 
not just valuing family in an outward direction or loving family in an outward direction, but that you, you're bringing it back to you too. And so um, one thing that I, that I work with with clients is valuing is not just about doing it outward towards others by showing up to family events or whatever the case might be. It's also about bringing it back to you. And so if your value is being loving, then, then how do you find a place where committed action can happen, where you're both being loving towards yourself and the family? How would you, what would that look like and how would you define it? And just I just negotiate that with a client and see what's going to work for them and talk about what they'd be willing to experience under those kinds of circumstances. And mm-hmm. so it's a, you know, it's a, sometimes those are quite long conversations and, in, and involve trying something on and seeing what happens and, you know, maybe uh, shifting things around a little bit. And so I think flexibility there is, is key. Yeah. And and I like what you said about giving the client complete control over that. Yeah. You know, it's not about saying you should do this just because you care about family. You have to show up at every event and you know, right. do what others want you to do. It's more about finding that place of um, being loving towards yourself too. That's great. Let's say, let's say that um, just in a – I'm kind of thinking of an extreme example where like let's say a parent is, is a, you know, an abuser. Let's say it's a father who's an abuser and it's a daughter – she still values going to family reunions. She values her mom. She maybe even loves her dad, yet he is the perpetrator in this case. Do, do you do you ever work to the point where she would be comfortable with being around her her father again? Is that even within the realm of possibility in in the work you do, or is that too much? Or it's, no, it's absolutely within the realm, uh, and it is it is what the client wants. Um, but certainly those, I've seen those kinds of, um, situations and I, part of the work that I think can be done in trauma work is forgiveness work. And maybe it's not that you, um, you know, arrive at a feeling where you feel like you've forgiven, forgiven somebody, but as a conscious, purposeful choice, you're going to work on actions of forgiveness that are related to your personal values. So you may do that with a father, let's say, who, who perhaps you still love, but was abusive towards you. And you get to define what that looks like, though, as the client, like how much interaction will I have with him when he behaves? If I go to a family reunion and maybe he says something inappropriate, what will I do under those circumstances? What do I, what will, what will I experience? And rather than running away, can I remove myself and go interact with mom? I mean, you can kind of feel the, the ways that you would work with it. And, um, for many survivors, anger is a about t- toward the perpetrator is is often part of the problem. But the in this sense is that when you carry around anger, it's often a problem for you, not necessarily the perpetrator, and can take on qualities of you doing the suffering inside of the anger. And so forgiveness can be very helpful in these situations, but a very delicate matter and defining what it looks like, not what it feels like is part of the issue. So Mm -hmm. it may be that they may never be comfortable around dad, but they're willing to do some kinds of committed action, self-defined that, 
that keep them in the family and in the family relationships. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Well, um, tell it. Maybe we can we can kind of wrap up with a with just a, an example or an illustration of of a client that that kind of got better through this um, through this approach. Like, can you can you just pick one of probably the many examples you've had of kind of a trajectory of of a, of a client was struggling and. And through through the different processes and act, and maybe one or two that really was kind of monumental or was a breakthrough for them, how they were able to, you know, get better and then, um, uh, and kind of have a happy ending, as much of a happy ending as possible. Does that does that is that too much of a, a thing to ask? As sort of just a way to illustrate a, um, how this can work. Um. No, I um let me think of a if I can think of a a good case example or maybe I will even do like a little bit of amalgam. Yeah. Um case where a a young girl was um a a, a woman was sexually abused as a young girl and um kind of saw her perpetrator as the enemy and the person to be regarded with disdain and uh through our work um she came and she kind of saw that little girl as a weak individual um and someone who also should be disdained because she wasn't able to stand up for herself under the circumstances of the of the trauma like somehow with this 2020 hindsight that Jen mentioned earlier she thought that that little girl should be more capable of um fending off her perpetrator and uh through some of the acceptance techniques and and in particular the little kid technique this this uh a woman came to see that sense of her as um, wholly acceptable and that what she had been doing across time was rejecting herself completely as a, as a individual who was ruined, damaged, weak, vulnerable, and she never wanted to be those things again. And so she kind of walked around with this hard armor um, uh and when she encountered people, she was a bit gruff and overly protective of herself and non-trusting. And um, through the process of of opening up to what she felt and to and seeing how her her behavior was impacting her values, which were having friends, being connected, you know, um, being involved with her family, she was. Um, able in small in small steps to f- be present to feelings of vulnerability to um even forgive her perpetrator in some ways this was a member of her family um and have some very measured interaction with that person and um reengage with i'm going to be compassionate with myself and get into my life and so reengage in a different way rather than the hard armor and this took a little a little bit of time she actually physically worked on um uncrossing her arms when she would talk to people 
um, changing her facial expression so that it didn't have a stern look on it and um, being more vulnerable with people around her and just in a process of of connecting just you could feel her life start to open up instead of be so closed so closed off wow. yeah so something I, I think that would um, you know and she was a pretty amazing person and um, uh, it really came to a different place in her in her life in terms of of actively changing her own behaviors and her relationship to herself in ways that became more workable and more functional. Hmm. Nice. Nice. And that ended up changing how she how she behaved with others and Yeah, and then suddenly, you know, it's like, oh, they they talked to me. <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. I didn't yeah. scare them away. They actually talked to me and um kind of having a sense of growth and movement uh based on that on those kinds of interactions. Mhm. Mhm. Mm, very good. Wow. So if there's one thing I could take away from this whole discussion is um, it seems like working with trauma is like um, understanding the, the ways people respond to the experience, like withdrawing, protecting, um, trying to, pr- to protect oneself or to um, make oneself stronger or avoid things that might be harmful. Like they make sense when the trauma happened, but that by continuing to do those things to manage those experiences later, they can lead you away from the life that you want, even though like your mind might say, this is the way to protect yourself. And that a a fundamental stance of act for PTSD might be helping you reconnect to your experience so that you're more able to live your life flexibly with whatever shows up rather than um, protecting yourself, even though that might've made sense at some point in time. Is that, does that sort of sound like a thing? Sure, sure. And I think that when we, you know, are out there living our lives, that for a large part of the time, it's kind of an orderly process. And when you are traumatized, things really become disorderly. And we've been taught from, you know, very young age that the way to um, fixed disorder is to problem solve it away and tidy it up and there's nothing tidy and neat about trauma right and uh, so really finding that space where you can uh, meet the trauma survivor with complete openness and acceptance and invite them to do the same while living a valued life in a disorderly world can be really really uh, uh, powerful for folks hmm. awesome Awesome. Well, wonderful. Wow. Great. Well, it feels like we covered a lot of great ground today. Um, we did. We opened the door for, for folks to learn more. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm very happy to spend time with you guys, and thank you very much for inviting me to come and talk about ACT and PTSD. Yeah, tell us real quick, are there, are there some books? Let's, let's list your book again, and tell us of other resources that, that people can uh, – can access uh, text or other based to kind of uh, extend their education. Anything you'd recommend? Well, so uh, the book that Dara Westrup and I wrote, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy for the Treatment of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder and Trauma-Related Problems, which, um, and by the way, includes a CD that has the exercises on it and um, some other important homework exercises for the for the client. And then... Um, 
you know, Victoria Follette and Jackie Pistorello wrote a self-help uh, a manual for folks who uh, have experienced trauma, and it's called Finding Life Beyond Trauma, uh, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy to Heal from Post-Traumatic Stress and Trauma-Related Problems. So uh, that one's also out, th out there on the market and can be quite helpful for folks who you know, are seeking a little bit of self-help or want to do a, some adjunct to the therapy. Therapists can use it while they're in sessions with their clients. And I should say that there's a couple of studies underway to take a look at um, act, ACT's effectiveness for PTSD. And so we're very excited about that. There's, you know, been some open trials that show that it's helpful. And if you do literature searches or internet searches, you can find some of the literature on that. And um, uh, some single case studies that show that it's helpful and those are also available in, in literature searches online and so there's there's information and things written about this and um, uh, I think uh, we're going to see this grow and expand as more uh, research data sh um, comes out and let's hope let's cross our fingers and hope that it really uh, does um, turn out to be a, a helpful therapy for folks and just you know based on my own experience and the trial that I did that it we're, we're headed in the right direction great excellent that's a great that's a great endorsement all well, right awesome. well um tell us real quickly if people want to get a hold of you uh, get in touch with you do you have a website or a, a way for them to do that the best way to my website's broken, uh, and sure. so I'm <laughs> getting it fixed. Do you do the consulting? Best, do you do consulting or, do, or training or, or things like that? I sure do. I okay. do consulting by phone and uh, Skype, and so folks can get in touch with me and make requests for uh, consultation slash supervision uh, training. And we do. I have. I do both group and individual work, and so they can contact me through my email which is robin.walser at sbcglobal.net uh, I don't know if you want me to repeat that we, we can put it up on the, on the site r-o-b-y-n just for folks yes r-o-b-y-n yeah yep great and, and we can um, also put some contact information up on the website when we post your um we post this episode so people can visit our website and this episode's uh, page to find ways to contact you as well fantastic and that sounds very good and again thank you guys for having me um do a podcast all right well robin walzer thank you for joining us on acting context um and we'd like to ask our listeners uh to check us out at our website it is uh tell us the website jen www.contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. And we are finally officially up on iTunes. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yes, we are. <laughs> Congratulations, guys. So we finally got that going as well. So for Acting Contacts on iTunes. It's free and you can subscribe. And it's there. All right, Rob and Jen, thank you again for joining us. Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great day. Talk to you Thanks. soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Ba-ba-ba-ba Ba-ba-ba-ba Ba-ba-ba-ba